And so I thought it might be useful to start off the new year with um, some reflections on non-self. And I want to look at this um, throughout the course of this month uh, and just see if we can uh, unpack, (laughs) uh, uh, probe into what the Buddha is saying here in this teaching. You know, and and, uh, it's an interesting one, to say the least. It's unique to Buddhism, as you've probably heard and, and seen for yourself. Um, and, and, you know, for the, perhaps for the first, maybe the first time we hear it, it can sound a little crazy. <laughs> you know, the Buddha seems to be saying we don't exist, you know, <laughs> we're not here, or something like that, there's no self. Um, but it's actually not what he said, uh, or what the teaching is pointing to. Um, in, in fact, um, when he was asked directly, uh, the Buddha didn't uh, affirm or deny the existence of the self. And there's this very interesting group of um, suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya. As you may know, these are collections of different uh, teachings around uh, uh, topics. And one of the one of the uh, Samyuttas is a is, it really covers a lot of questions um, uh, that are posed to the Buddha about why he he didn't adopt some of the metaphysical teachings of the time. What what uh, what part of his teachings were unique and. Uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting things in that collection, but one in particular is that he does tackle this topic of non-self. And it, it, it takes the, the, you know, the, the stage is set with this uh, wanderer, Vachagota, who comes to the Buddha to ask uh, questions. He, he figures prominently in a number of these different suttas where he um, uh, wants to get straight on a couple of topics. And so um, he asks the Buddha, very uh, straight um, Right, you know, right out of the right, very clearly. What is there a self? Is there a self? That's how he posed it, and and the Buddha didn't answer. And then Vachagota asked, "Well, well, is there not a self?" You know, and again, the the Buddha didn't answer. He remained silent. And as the Sutta says, the wanderer Vachagota wandered off. (laughs) He's just like, "Oh, okay. Well, nothing here for me." You know. And uh, it was interesting because uh, the sutta is actually named and uh, called Ananda because Ananda figures prominently in it as well. And what he does is, uh, which he's often uh, sort of the one who comes in and saves the day when these kinds of things happen. And uh, he, so he asked the Buddha something. And I'm paraphrasing, but it's something to the effect of, "Now wait, wait a minute here. You know, <laughs> what just happened?" Why didn't you answer that uh, wanderer's uh, question directly? And the the Buddha replied that he didn't answer because uh, neither uh, question that he asked uh, is true. It's not correct to say that there is a self. It's not correct to say that there's not a self. Uh, and so uh, these kinds of questions you see often throughout the suttas where the, uh, the uh, questioner creates somewhat of a double bind and the Buddha is not going to go there. <laughs> He's not going to take the bait and, and answer something that uh, the, when the question itself is a little bit off. And so I, I bring this up. I mean, that particular sutta is one I've contemplated uh, quite a bit because, um, you know, there's something in there for all of us. 
you know, if you're like me, when you first heard this teaching, you might have heard or thought it was a little bit weird, you know, a little bit strange, and may have questioned, just as Vachagota does, well, is there a self or isn't there a self? You know, there's got to be an answer to this. Uh, and maybe not in so many words, we, we might not pose it that way in our own minds, but in a way, if we pose it something like that, uh, then like uh, if we go the way of Vachagota, then we can easily go down the wrong path. And here's what I mean by this. Um, If we believe that there is no self, then one might deny the need for a very strong inner core. And, uh, you know, the Buddhist teachings are nothing if not something that develops a very high degree of personal integrity, a very, very strong uh, inner core, with teachings like uh, skillful and unskillful actions through body, speech, and mind. You know, where the Buddha is very clear on the need to be aware of these and to discern for ourselves through our own observing which uh, is the behavior that brings the greatest uh, happiness and, and freedom for us. Or, or things, you know, practices like the precepts where it's very clear that what he's pointing to is something that is, is it's, it's like offering us, look and see, what's it like when you do harm and when you don't do harm? You know, what's it like when you take things that don't belong to you and when you, when you don't take them? And so uh, over the years of practice, at least this is what I've seen in my own heart, and, and I'll bet you have as well, you know, one gets very clear about what's important and about what we value. You know, I, I find myself over the years of practice just standing taller, you know, chest out, shoulders back, just very clear. This is what I'm about. And... Um, you know, the, the behaviors that I seek to uh, embody in myself. Uh, and so this is gradually the, the case of wisdom and understanding being developed in, in, in this heart. And so uh, we see and feel, literally feel, uh, the experience of harm and uh, try not to go the way of doing harm. <laughs> You know, and, and, and so, um, you know, one, as I said, one stands tall in a, a feeling of, of self-respect and, and inner strength. And, uh, you know, some people might call that a very strong sense of self. And, in, and I would too. It's very much a, a sense of uh, what the, the Buddhist teachings and practices are, are trying to lead us towards. So, but if, on the other hand, we believe that... Um, there is a self, then we might think that we need a non-self, you know. <laughs> and so you get this kind of structure in, in, in the mind and, and, and you, you find people trying to free themselves of a self that never existed in the first place. And there's, this manifests in very different ways, you know. You can do things like freeze up every time one uses personal pronouns or self-referential language or, or, or things of this nature. You know, I've actually heard people say like uh, something like a Oops, I said I. Oops, I said I again. Oh, oh, I'm saying I all the time, you know, and just trying to, becoming aware through the uh, practice and the, uh, the teachings of the Buddha that uh, how, how self-absorbed we are, but mistaking that um, for a kind of a war on language that has uh, anything, any kind of self-referential uh, aspect to it. And, and uh, it's, it's pretty funny when we do this. This is very common among practitioners. I certainly did it myself in the early years of my own practice. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's quite comical, really, when you begin to catch what you're, what you're actually doing here. 
Um, one time when I was coming back from, I think I was coming back from St. Louis, um, and I sat down on the plane next to a gal who was reading um, Slaughterhouse-Five, which was one of my favorite books in my 20s, I think, you know. And, and so I commented on it. We got in a little discussion uh, about the book. And uh, I said there was one piece of it that there were so many things stood out in my mind, but one stood out in particular where this uh, lieutenant had the job of um, censoring, reading all the outgoing mail, and censoring um, things that shouldn't be in the letters. And it was with an eye to looking for things that might give away their location or plans or anything like that. That that was the objective of it. But he he got so bored with it (laughs) that he, he, you know, one week um, he take war on verbs, you know, and he'd cross off all the verbs in the letters. And another week he'd, he'd cross off all the personal pronouns and things like this. And so, so people would get these letters, you can imagine, they would get these letters from their loved ones on the front and they didn't make any sense, you know, because uh, half the words would be, be crossed out. But in, in a way, that's what we're doing you know, when we're going to war with this kind of self, self-referential thinking or, or, or speaking. Uh, so just to be clear that we're not trying to stop that, These, this language is uh, a convention. It's uh, convenient. Um, it's uh, inconsequential in one sense. You know, when you read the suttas, the Buddha used personal pronouns all the time. <laughs> you know, he's talking about his life. He's talking about his practice. So uh, we're not uh, trying to, to do this. But it's kind of interesting to contemplate, though, because uh, ironically... Uh, when you when you look at it, it's just the sense of self, thinking that it has to do something to have a not self. It's like, oh, I want to be nobody. I want to be nobody. You know, it's like the the mind who picks up this teaching and th- sees that it's significant, insight into non-self, and and this is how it can play out uh, early on until uh, we understand it a little bit better. So what the Buddha is doing here, rather, is, is encouraging us simply to become aware of um, discrete aspects of our experience. And he breaks it down into the five aggregates, body, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. And in a way, to see how the mind uh, unknowingly and unwittingly picks up what's going on at those five levels and creates a sense of me around it, identifies, attaches, uh, uh, relates in a way from a kind of a self-absorbed um, perspective, just uh, grabbing hold of moment-to-moment experience and relating to it constantly from a vantage point of self. And, and the, you know, the teaching is, don't do that. You know, see, see the mind do that. See the consequences of doing that and uh, endeavor to um, uh, refrain or restrain in that effort and learn about it. Learn about what it's like to do that and what it's like not to do that. So instead of just letting experience be what it is, um, it's as if the, the mind is incessantly having something to say about it, wanting to do something with it, relating to it in one way or another. The, the unawakened mind just doesn't let body, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness be what they are. It, it, it creates a sense of me around their existence. And, and then what happens is this uh, identity 
or identification with what is really our reaction to what's happening in this body and mind. Um, it be- begins to loom very large and it becomes more real in our moment-to-moment experience than the actual experience wh- from which it's proceeding, from which it's, uh, which it's relating to. And um, in essence, what happens is our, our attention turns away from what we're experiencing. And we become preoccupied with the way of relating to that experience. And essentially, that's where we live. You know, that expression, we live a short distance from ourselves. It, it, it's that. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's what's happening, there's what we have to say about it, how we're relating to what's happening. And that's uh, where we're living. So I think the Buddha is saying very clearly here that this represents a distortion it's, it's, not the, what, it's not direct experience. It's not our direct experience, but it gets very solid over time. And um, it, it kind of takes on a, a life of its own. So it's sad, really, because we think we're living life, but we're really living sort of over here in a way of reacting to what is actually happening. And, and the Buddha defines this very clearly as suffering. This is, this is the definition of suffering. The five focuses of the grasping mind are suffering. The five focuses of identity are suffering. The habit of this unawakened mind to grab hold of uh, uh, this experience of the body and mind and make itself. This is part of the Buddha's clear definition of suffering as he lays it out in the, in the First Noble Truth. So as practitioners, what we want to do is um, just uh, examine our experience of this body and mind and, and see for ourselves if, this, if what he's saying is true. See what's going on here. And so uh, we scrutinize the, the moment-to-moment experience uh, as we do in meditation. And it's with an eye to seeing over time um, how this sense of self is getting constructed and I'll talk more about that next week, but how that's happening. And begin to see over time um, what the experience of that is. What's, it, what's that like? <laughs> you know, to live in this um, self-absorbed uh, relationship with what's happening. What's it like? It's a very important piece of information because it's not a pleasant experience. And yet, uh, here, that, that's where we are much of the time. And uh, to just very uh, directly notice uh, the consequences uh, of doing that. You know, for example, like what's it feel like to get caught up in, in worry, which is a reaction to what's happening. You know, and, and then just to learn through the months and years and perhaps lifetimes of practice what it uh, takes to deconstruct all of that through meditative insight, uh, through wisdom, through understanding. And so this, this whole process is very, very important. And as we realize for ourselves how the sense of self is being constructed and how much it uh, constitutes our suffering, then uh, you know, what, what meditators report across the board is that the meditation practice really starts to get off the ground. <laughs> because now, having seen this uh, erroneous way of relating, this suffering way of relating, and ha- having experienced what it's like to stop doing that and, and see very directly what it's like to be free of that, now you've got a basis for letting go. <laughs> you know, the mind has seen very clearly 
ah, you know, this is, uh, it's an amazing freedom to not be caught in that tangle, in that web. And so we want to uh, just look, um, walk through these uh, five experiences and see just uh, a, a little, just give some ideas of how we might um, work with this as practitioners, how we see the sense of self and how we free ourselves from it um, through seeing the attachment to these five. So starting with the body, you know, we walk around uh, in our lives, in our practice here at the Forest Refuge, and, and just notice what's going on with the physical form. Uh, and um, there's physical sensation. And the way that we describe this in our practice, in these teachings, is uh, very specifically, sensation has to do with uh, the four primary elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Uh, And our experience from one moment to the next is one form or another of uh, a a constellation of of these uh, four elements in varying degrees of uh, intensity or uh, absence of intensity. So we might feel heavy or light or uh, movement or stillness, hot or cold, uh, moisture or dryness. And and physically, that's about it. It's, it, it doesn't, there's nothing outside of that. Our, our moment-to-moment physical experience uh, can be described completely and totally as the play of these four elements. But we, we notice, too, how the mind keeps getting caught up in what's going on at that level, how it's constantly commenting about this or, or wanting to do something about it. You know, and, and it gets very personal very quickly, doesn't it? You know, if you get a, a good constellation of the earth element going in your right knee during a sitting, you know, it gets very personal very quickly. You know, and you could find yourself sitting there with this uh, roar of a reaction internally. You know, I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. It's like, ah! <laughs> you know, it, it's like it's already an unpleasant experience, but now the mind is um, grabbing hold of that and reacting to it and in a way compounding it. It's like it's, it's, uh, you can see what the, the sense of self does and, and how uh, attachment to it uh, makes our experience even worse. Um, or that's just internally, but there's, you know, the same thing is going on externally with the elements. So on days like today where it's very cold, you know, if you happen to be a person who doesn't like that, some New Englanders love it and can't wait for it to be this way. You know, some of us from the South don't like it so much, you know, we want it it to be warm, you know. But you watch and see how the the mind uh, is doing with all of this, with the the, the play of of the elemental forces, both internally and, and externally. You know, it's always having something to say and then we can, we move into that very, very quickly. But what happens over the years, hopefully, we practice with that and learn to to take it a bit less personally. And it's interesting because, you know, again, you can have these wars on uh, what's happening and uh, I don't think that's what the Buddha is pointing to here. You know, it's in a way, it's, it's fair enough to say, yeah, I'd rather not have uncomfortable feelings in my body. <laughs> yes, I'd, I'd rather every day is sunny and bright. You know, it's okay at one level to acknowledge that. That's uh, uh, how, how one uh, comments uh, about it. But um, it's just that when we take it also personally, 
then we go down the road of compounding suffering. And as I said, it might be something that's already difficult. It might be pleasant, and we're compounding that, but it might also be difficult. So, you know, um, it's tricky, isn't it? How do you relate skillfully to the play of of the elements? You know, to say uh, it's unpleasant, and even to say that I don't like it is one thing, but uh, to make it wrong or to make it a huge problem, that's the kicking off point for this sense of self, this me that is somehow being put upon by the way that things actually are. You can feel it, how that's all getting added on. (laughs) It's not actually what's happening. It's something that the mind is fabricating about what's happening. But this is what it does and and how, how it behaves. So, I don't know, th- this may not sound like much, but just learning to be relaxed and accepting around um, the physical form, around sensations, uh, can, can serve to, to bring a whole lot of peace into our lives. You know, it, it, it's been huge uh, for myself over the years, and I'll bet for you, just to, to know the various aches and pains of the body and to be okay, you know, to know that, yeah, I wish it was a little sunnier, a little warmer, but I'm okay, you know. The mind isn't going bonkers around the, the conditions. Uh, we can function because there's no attachment. There's the, there's the condition. There may be an attitude about that condition, but we see the attitude and we ain't buying it. <laughs> you know, we're just fine with conditions as they actually are. So learning about the body and working with attachment to the body um, also involves noticing the changes that are taking place in the body. For example, when we get sick or with uh, aging, you know, w- without getting caught up in these either. Uh, and this is, this is huge. Uh, this can be a huge part of our practice, especially as, as we get older. You know, and I've noticed in myself that just these little uh, twitches, you know, especially if there's a little chest pain or something like that, you know, how quickly the, the, the mind will go on about that. And in a finger snap, um, you, you can see yourself being carried out in, on a stretcher, you know, or, or worse, a coffin, you know, and, and just the, the mind, ah, you know, something's happening here and I don't like it. You know, what's that versus the, the pain, you know, what's, what is that? It, really beginning to notice the difference between these two, how the mind is fabricating reactions to what's happening and, and living in those reactions. You know, it's crazy, but we, we all do it. You know, or you know, just going uh, a little crazy around evidence of aging, you know, looking in the mirror and seeing age spots. You know, one of my things is I, you know, started a number of years ago to get these little hairs in my chin, you know, <laughs> and it was the first time I saw it, it was like, ah, <laughs> you know, I'm really getting old now, <laughs> and especially if they were white ones, you know, and then having to rush and find the tweezer and, and get rid of it, or uh, the horror of being someplace where I realize it's there and I don't have my tweezer, you know, <laughs> and it's going, the mind is just going crazy for a while. But then, you know, you, you learn to see this stuff. It's contemplated according to this, this practice. And, you know, eventually it, it just becomes something funny. <laughs> it's interesting to see, um, 
you know, that this is uh, how the mind is throwing up these reactive patterns. And, and you could actually sit back and go, you know, I ain't buying it. <laughs> this is not the end of the world. I ain't going there. Thanks anyway. Thanks, but no thanks. So just looking at how one uh, contemplates the, the body and attaches to the body uh, from this vantage point of me. And me carries with it a lot of views about the right me and the wrong me. So looking at, at feeling, you know, and we notice uh, through practice, we notice the constant parade of pleasant, unpleasant, and uh, feeling, and, and feeling that is neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And, and just uh, watching feeling over time is very, very rich area of practice. Uh, for myself, I find it a little hard initially just to selectively attend to feeling because it's, it's so subtle and uh, it, it's so intertwined with perception and with uh, the, the places where feeling takes us that, you know, you, you, it takes a little time to get some sense of just noticing this very real sense of sort of contracting around things that are unpleasant or lightening, expanding around things that are pleasant and sort of just getting dull and dreamy around things that don't have much charge to them. But uh, eventually, you know, you do get tuned to it. And one of the uh, very important things to see is to notice where um, feeling takes us you know, how quickly uh, pleasant feeling becomes uh, the wanting and the leaning and unpleasant feeling becomes the resisting and the, and the rejecting, the turning away and uh, how neither just becomes an, an ignoring and a dulling of the mind. And, and so it's, it's very, very fascinating to notice this because this is, these are, we're actually witnessing and observing very directly some uh, primordial impulses you know, things that are very tuned in or keyed into are are the survival of the species. These uh, impulses to get away from danger, uh, you know, to go towards things that are delicious or wonderful in one way or another. Uh, And so we're we're looking at um, how much feeling uh, is a key player in this uh, human uh, system of survival. But uh, tuning into feeling just also helps us see how it's that kicking off point for greed, hatred, and delusion. And that's a critical insight that happens uh, in practice. And I think we can understate the significance of that. Uh, I don't know about you, but before I practiced, I did not know those as distinct experiences. Pleasure and having to get more, you know, pain and having to get away from it. One didn't know them as distinct, discrete experiences. They went together quite naturally. Of course they do. You always, you always want more pleasure. You always want to get away from pain. That's, the, that, that's reasonable, sensible. But the idea that they could be separated and one could see these uh, as discrete experiences and the implications of being able to do that, how powerful that is for us as practitioners to understand and to see it so a, a mature practitioner knows this and, and slows things down so that one isn't necessarily going with the instinctive impulses. It's like, whoa. <laughs> you know, you're taking on your own biology to be able to do that. Very, very powerful. Um, literally, one feels empowered to, to um, 
have something to say <laughs> about whether or not you're going to go with these impulses. And, and, and again, it may not sound like much, but look and see and, uh, and, and consider what it's like when we can um, se- separate these things out. So that you, you know, what's it like to actually find things pleasant and not have to have them? You know, somebody was talking about this in an interview recently, just when all those chocolates were out there, you know, and just noticing the chocolates and going past, and not, not out of a sense of restraint, but more how, when you're still and present, how the, the mind is sort of discerning. It's, oh, pleasant, yeah, but no, yeah, okay. Don't need it, you know? It, it, it can make these sort of assessments uh, uh, in a finger snap. And, and so the impulse to follow something that on, a, on another day might be very attractive and very difficult to resist um, because one is still, you've got options. <laughs> <Whew. laughs> this is it's such a road to happiness for us as practitioners. Or being able to, to, to find things unpleasant and not having to get rid of them. And somebody else, somebody else was saying this in a, in a practice discussion today about uh, just ha- having somebody around them who was making a lot of noise and, and noticing the noise and noticing uh, the impact uh, of that noise and not hating the person, you know, not, not wanting to to stop even, not wanting to get rid of them, not having something nasty to say about that. And how, how oh, equanimity, it's, oh man, <laughs> you know, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? So, oh, such a wonderful feeling. Or finding things neither pleasant nor unpleasant and uh, not checking out. It's like there's not a whole lot happening. And I'm still here, alert, <laughs> awake, <laughs> you know, present to that. Wow. I don't know what that does to you, but it makes me very happy <laughs> to see that, uh, that kind of experience. Uh, and actually, it's an important one to realize, too, because uh, being able to be alert to neither pleasure nor pain you know, not, not, life right now doesn't have much of a charge to it, and that's okay. This is one of the ways that we learn about equanimity. This is one of the, this is like an immature level of equanimity. You know, it's, it's a, it, it, it's, it's, you start to get the feeling of what it's like to not have to be chasing or moving away. Very, very important thing to, to notice as practitioners. So, so feel the calming effect of all of that. And, and uh, we get glimpses into the non-identification with feeling. And again, this might not sound like much, but I just invite you to contemplate and consider what it was like in, uh, in your first retreats <laughs> around feeling. You know, just to go, go back and recollect, to remember uh, how much we've grown, see how much we've grown with this stuff. You know, on my first retreat, I got a, a real bug in my head about um, Chips Ahoy. I, I wanted some Chips Ahoy, <laughs> and I wanted them now. And, of course, I had driven to the retreat, so I had my car, and I knew I passed a store just a few miles down the road, and I'll bet they have them. 
you know, and the, the, the torment uh, of the first few months of that retreat, how many times one picked up those keys and put them in the pocket and walked towards the car and turned around and came back. And again, a few days later, again, those chips ahoy would not leave me alone. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the idea of, it's just a thought. It's not, it's not even, the cookie's not even in front of me, you know. It's just the idea, picturing the packages and those little elves, you know. <laughs> and, and what the mind would do with that. It was just a pleasant idea. And one could barely resist. Right? You know, you have to go and follow that pleasant thought. You know, and, but gradually, thank goodness, it changes, doesn't it? And it changes because we're willing to hang in there and watch that whole sequence. Tune into the feeling, tune into where it can take us, and tune into that sense of me around all of that. So now, with perception, just a few thoughts about this. <clears throat> this is... Uh, you know, as practitioners, we begin to notice what happens in the mind, uh, how it forms views, how it forms ideas and and uh, perceptions about things, and w- how we can get caught up in these. And we do this frequently. Uh, and <clears throat> they're my views, my ideas, the way I think it is, the way I think it should be. And then very quickly, they become things that you have to defend and de- debate with other people. And, and how they cloud our capacity to see things as they really are. So we do this with our views about the external world, um, views about the right way to do things, the right way to be. Uh, and, and, you know, you can argue with people over the craziest things because their views are different than yours. And I, I think back to some of the earlier presidential elections, you know, and... Uh, how really in my 20s and 30s, how I actually gave up friends depending on how they voted, you know. It's like, no, yeah, you know, they, they, they voted for the wrong person. How could they possibly think that way, you know. I don't want them in my life. And how, how, how the mind will do that, uh, just zero in on, attach so completely and fully to, uh, to a view. Um, rule people out, wipe people out of our lives. And how we do this with uh, views about the, the internal world, ideas that we have about how we should be, or how, about how it should be. Yeah, these are very, these are dominant, and really, this is one of the key players in the formation of self-view. It's a view. It's an idea about self, and, and it, it looms very large and uh, becomes a, a dominant uh, attitude or, or feature of our minds. Uh, and so we might have uh, be having some difficulty in one way or another, and one very easily gets caught in thinking that's tantamount to you know what's the matter with me? Why can't I see this? Why aren't I doing this right? What's the matter? Uh, there must be something very wrong with me. And you you see how uh, this view about a right way to be sets up um, the the counter view of self-loathing, you know. Uh, that, that beating up on ourselves because of the way that we actually are. You know, and this plays out big time in practice. I'm sure you've seen this. You know, especially if you've been at it for a long time. I should be getting this. I should be further along the path. 
There's all these insights that everybody's having and I'm not having them. You know, and, and the, the weird thing is that this gets thrown up in the mind as something that's helpful, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's like, you know, how, uh, on what, in what universe is this kind of thinking helpful, right? But we, we take the bait all of the time because it's a, it's a, um, it, it's a perspective that uh, uh, creates and attaches to this sense of self. And so we believe these kinds of thoughts. And they're just views and, and perceptions. They're conditioned arisings. But one will get caught in them and identify with them. So in practice, when it comes to perception, what we need to do is see this, see perception and view as perception and view, and be able to uh, stand back from it, see that the mind is doing that. It's what it does. It's not, it's not a problem. But it's only a, a, creates difficulty if we get caught in it, identify with it. It's actually possible to stand back and see the mind forming views and not get entangled in them. So, you know, in, in practice, that's what we try to do. And it may not sound like much, again, but uh, some of the most painful experiences in our lives are proceeding from these kinds of, of attachments. The sense that there's a right thing to do, and we're not doing it. There's a right way to be, and we're not being it. Or there's a right way to be, and they're not being it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> smack them around a little bit, too. <laughs> And if everything would just all get right, you know, then I wouldn't have to suffer like this. In short, if it would go in line with the way I think it should be. Can you feel this? I mean, it's just such a huge fabrication in the mind. And yet, I mean, can we talk? It's where we live a lot of the time, isn't it? So all of our interpersonal conflicts fall into this category. So formations, comma formations, just noticing what happens um, with our own states of mind. You know, we all have patterns, we all have dispositions, we all have habits of mind that are highly, highly conditioned. You know, maybe we each have unique patterns. Yours might be different than mine, uh, but we all definitely have uh, certain dispositions and patterns. And identifying with those involves relating to them with one form or another of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the, the, the greedy mind, if you will, or the greedy reaction is to indulge it, to get caught in it. Or the, the hateful reaction is to uh, not want to be that way. Not want, I don't want that attitude of mind. I don't want to be that way. And f- go to war with it, fight and resist it. Or, or just uh, acting on them automatically without seeing... Uh, the pattern as as a pattern, as a formation in the mind, uh, and seeing it as such, and instead just uh, because we don't see it, uh, because we're relating out of delusion, uh, it, it becomes the way that we are all the time. You don't have any option but to to be uh, that particular pattern. And you, I'm sure you've seen the, the extent of suffering that arises from that. You know, where you can really see a pattern that is difficult, that's caused a lot of suffering, and you can't stop being it. You know, it, this is so, the habit is so great, and the, capa- the tendency to relate to it from a vantage point of me 
uh, is so great. So we, we cling to them in, in one way or, or another, and these uh, dispositions become who I am. So in practice, what we want to do, and this is, this is an interesting one, because these, these feel very personal, very much, uh, very true that this is who I am. But we want to develop the capacity just to soften around our formations, our patterns and habits of mind. And, and just to be able to receive them and accept them. This sounds kind of uh, paradoxical. You know, aren't we trying to overcome them, especially if they're difficult? And yes, but it's just that the strategies of doing that are very different than what we're used to. We're not trying to overcome them by smacking ourselves around and demanding that we be some other way. We're try- we overcome them by s- receiving them, seeing the way we are, and finding a way not to hate it, not to indulge it, and to definitely see it. Uh, so that from that direct experience, through that direct knowledge, you know, this heart is not stupid. <laughs> it start to sort out uh, the skillful and the, from the unskillful, uh, the ways that are serving us from the ways that aren't serving us. But it, it takes a capacity to stop quarreling with ourselves, you know, to stop um, going on about the patterns that arise in us. And, and it's very helpful to see, uh, and this happens gradually over time as we practice, that uh, these uh, patterns, all of the patterns that arise in this mind, the habits of mind, the mind states, they're all um, the fruits of past actions. And there's, you know, you can't help that they arise in the mind. There's, and in fact, there's nothing to be done about it. There's no way to uh, stop that from happening because there's a, there's a pattern that's been set in place the last time we related to it with one form or another of greed, hatred, and delusion. And so guess what? It's back. <laughs> it's back. <laughs> and, and here it is again. And so uh, the only, there's nothing to be done about that. You know, the only thing that uh, we can do in moments like that, the, the Buddha says, don't create fresh karma. Don't create any fresh karma. And that would be by relating to it in a, one form or another of attachment. So, so uh, just to allow that it's there and discern from the direct experience of it what it's like to be that way. And, and you know, the, the mind gets the picture over time. It starts to create force fields around difficult states. It won't even go into them. Uh, once we've really, really seen and gotten a good clean hit uh, of the harm that's done. So, you know, uh, we, can, we can't do much about their arising, but we can address how we receive it. That's very much within our power. So uh, the, uh, the idea here, what we see over time, is it, 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 it doesn't make sense to identify with it. It doesn't make any sense at all. That's where all the suffering is being born. So literally, I mean, it has to get to the point where you look at, you know, you take a kind of an accounting of the patterns that are dominant in, in your mind. And certainly looking at the difficult ones makes sense because there's, that's where the suffering is. So, you know, you hear a lot of uh, meditators report that they're, 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 they're just nodding all the time. They're very sleepy and, and slothful states of mind. A lot of suffering, wishing that they weren't that way. Uh, but you know the idea might the idea with this approach is to find a way to make peace with that, 
what can, what can you say? That some people nod. I mean, that's the way it goes. Sariputta was a nodder, you know? <laughs> I, I, take, I take comfort in that. <laughs> I mean, there's actually a sutta called nodding, and it's about him talking about his nodding, you know? Uh, and, and so it's like, well, you know, find a way to be okay, that that's a dominant feature here. What, what are you going to do? The last thing you want to do is hate it, right? It doesn't make any sense. So finally, the consciousness, you know, creating a sense of self around consciousness is subtle, but it's not at all impossible to see. In fact, I think it's one of the easiest things to see uh, of all of these attachments. Um, so, I mean, you can do it right now, just like notice that, notice that there's an, an object in the room and notice that um, there is uh, the seeing of that object. It's a very, very in- interesting phenomenon. goes with the territory of being born. We have these senses and this is how they behave. So there is the, there is the object and there is the seeing of that. And consciousness is the thing that makes that uh, possible, that connects those two. And uh, it connects the eye with the, uh, with the object of sight. It, it is the seeing. It is that experience, the direct experience of seeing. But then watch, just notice as you walk about and practice here. Notice how in, in the moments or even simultaneous with that, one gets a very, very real sense of me in here as the one who is doing that. I am seeing, right? You, can, you feel it, you get a very, very visceral sense of that, the one who is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. So, so this is a subtle movement of the mind to identify with consciousness. It's not what's actually happening. You know, what's happening is seeing. There is seeing. But this, this little bit, this, this me as the one who is doing that, look and see if you can see it. It's like it's a tag. <laughs> it's getting added on after the experience or sometimes simultaneous with it. It's not the, the direct experience. Uh, it's being added on. And yet it becomes our experience and gives a very strong sense of me in here and it out there. And you, you can see the setup. This is the setup for self-view. You know, now we've got me and it. You, you know, me and you. Me, you know, it, 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 we've actually separated ourselves out. And so the, the setup here is then everything becomes something that is not you and therefore something that you want, you hate, or you're, you know, re- react to in one way or another. It's all proceeding from this very subtle attachment to our consciousness. So it, it assumes a, a reality all of its own and, and becomes um, the one, you, very quickly, I become the one who is doing that, who is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. But I mean, I think all the Buddha is saying here is that just to recognize that as a distortion. <laughs> it's, not the exp- it's not what's actually happening. It's a, it's a distortion. It's one of those a short distance from ourselves. <laughs> you know, it's one of those kinds of moments. And, and we want to see how it happens and learn from, from our observing of that. 
So it's a very interesting uh, sutta, the uh, the Anattalakana Sutta, where the Buddha outlays all of this. And um, what he says in it is, um, the well-taught disciple, skilled and disciplined in their dhamma, does not regard the five aggregates as self. Essentially does not attach to them as being self. So it's easy. <laughs> Just don't attach to them. <laughs> Just see it as such. Uh, don't regard body, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness as self. But it's not so easy, is it? And, and just, just, but just developing skill at sorting out um, our experience and, and seeing the, these uh, various components of our experience, these five components of our experience, just doing that takes time. You know, one has to be willing to devote yeah, at least a few years to it, if not a few lifetimes, just to be able to to see that in a continuous way, um, and and just uh, commit to that, commit to that as practitioners, and hold that in a very patient and and loving way. So it, it's really uh, just the case of being increasingly impartial towards what we experience in this body and mind. And that sounds like a paradox. To the sense of self, that is a completely ridiculous idea, you know, to be impartial about the body and mind because from the sense of self, the body and mind is me, you know. I'm not going to be impartial. That's, that's who I am. But uh, the Buddha is pointing to something quite profound here, which is that it is, it is not who we are. It is not who we are. And there, there is a way of, of knowing uh, this and not attaching to such that the, the sense of self does not get born in relation to our moment-to-moment experience. And over the, over the months and years of practice, that this sense of self um, it dies very slowly. It's a gradual uh, unlinking un, uh, from this uh, pattern or habit of attaching through clear seeing, through understanding um, what our experience is, seeing for ourselves what attachment to that experience does, seeing for ourselves what non-attachment is like, uh, and, and basically discerning uh, where we want to be. So it does die a slow death, but it does die <laughs> you know, gradually over time. Uh, and it's not a wrenching away. It's actually um, uh, synonymous in many ways with the experience of liberation, of liberating the mind. It's, it's liberating itself from the grasping uh, of the body and mind as being who we are. So, you know, as a result, we're, we're much happier and a lot less confused <laughs> and um, have the continuing basis for non-attachment as we uh, garner insight into non-self. So just to, to take heart as we practice uh, together here, you know, we can and do garner this kind of insight um, over the, the time, uh, the, the years of practice. And uh, we can trust that, that what the Buddha is pointing to can be seen, is being seen by all of us, uh, little by little. So I offer this for your reflection tonight. Uh, I hope it's helpful. We'll sit for just a moment.
So shall we close with... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.